Hello, this is Doug Farrar of Sports Illustrated with a different kind of podcast today. Uh, we usually do these with Greg Cosell, and we're going to break out and start doing these with uh, more people in pro and college scouting, uh, different analysts, kind of bringing different, uh, different angles to the game and how players and other aspects of football are evaluated. And uh, today we have Dan Hatman, a former NFL uh, personnel executive who now runs ScoutingAcademy.com, which uh, is a fascinating site. And Dan and I recently, Dan reached out to me, and we recently had a, a really interesting conversation. And I kind of wanted to take what we talked about and spread it out into more of a public forum. Um, so, Dan, welcome. Before we start, I need to say uh, the Kickstarter campaign has been very successful, and WalterFootball.com uh, stepped up to be our sponsor. So here's, here, here's where the business part comes in. Uh, thanks to WalterFootball.com. Proud to be a sponsor of Chalk Talk, the Doug Ferrar Football Podcast. For more draft information, including NFL mock drafts updated weekly, draft stock reports, fantasy football rankings, NFL picks, and much more, check out WalterFootball.com. Okay, so now we paid the bills. Dan Hatman from ScoutingAcademy.com. Welcome, Dan. And first of all, um, give me a, a couple minutes on your background and how you went from where you were as a 5'10 defensive tackle to where you are now <laughs> as, uh, as the guy who's kind of behind this new enterprise with a lot of, you know, ex-GMs, coaches, scouts. It's really kind of a fascinating thing. Yeah, it, it's been a, a heck of a journey uh, and one that I've really enjoyed. You know, as all of them do, they have their ups and downs, but uh, the process was, was quality. So, yeah, I started out as a 5'10 defensive tackle trying to walk on to a 1AA program. Um, happened to be the University at Albany, which were the Giants at training camp. So after my career uh, quickly ended due to injury and, and probably a lack of, of, of skill in some areas, um, I got on the coaching staff uh, at the program there. So um, was an undergrad assistant, just trying to learn and do as much as possible, and they called in a favor and said, hey, guys, the Giants do training camp here. Do you guys know anybody over there? I'd love to get an internship. And next thing I know, I'm sitting down with Dave Gettleman, who was the director of pro personnel at the time, and uh, the man that hired uh, the interns for his staff, and was talking with him about trying to come on and join him for, for training camp, and obviously was was able to convince him I was the man for the job and, and got hired. I was 19 when I broke into the league. So that was, uh, that was the start of it all. Um, from there, did a couple seasons with them. Um, I had the great fortune my first full year in the league to be a part of a Super Bowl champion. So I'm spoiled rotten and have a, a ring from very early in my career. Not bad. And then came uh, one of those seminal moments. They talk about Fork in the Road where the team asked me to stay again for another year. And I had to make a decision on what that would do for, for my career. Uh, career trajectory. So I had you know, really insightful conversations with everybody from Jerry Reese to Kevin Abrams to Mark Ross, Ken Sternfeld, Dave, the whole Giants front office, and all of them were, were very much the same page that these are billion-dollar franchises and that if you're looking to the horizon, owners are going to really want hybrid people running these teams in the future, meaning you have the football act, I mean, that has to be a baseline that everybody puts to the table. But if you have another skill in your back pocket, uh, it's really going to be an asset to you. So I ended up departing, going to grad school, uh, University of Massachusetts, they have a great sport management department, and fortunate enough to get on the coaching staff there, uh, G8 with them, got my master's degrees, and 
luckily they had a great alumni network. So once again, a network kicks in. And Mike Tenenbaum and Scott Cohen, who were the GM and the assistant GM of the Jets at the time, were both alumni of UMass. And that allowed me to start meeting with them, going to games, kind of understand the organization, which led to an internship with them. Um, then we, we had the big 2011 lockout, and the owners decided not to uh, add anybody else to staff. So right. the man was out of team for a little while there. And again, the network steps up. Scott Cohen calls Howie Roseman in Philadelphia, who they'd worked together years before, and said, I have a guy for you. And next thing I know, I'm in Philadelphia interviewing for a job. And eight hours later, when I walked out the door, uh, I had it in hand. So that was the, the NFL side of it. Um, so how did, here. just in a, to, to summarize, how did Scouting Academy start, and what is the, what is the goal here? Sure. So Scouting Academy kicks off when I step away from the league in 2013 to start a different venture. And I look back upon my time and just remember how hard it was to learn how to do the job well. As none of the teams I worked for had an internal scout school. They had a vetting process to get a job, but after that you were kind of thrown into the mix and had to sink or swim. And so I stepped out and said, hey, I, there's probably something else I can do here. So I put up a post on work and sports and said I'd be willing to tutor people um, that wanted to get involved in scouting. And I had 100 applicants in the first week. So I ended up uh, working with 15 uh, men and women that, that spring. It was about six months worth of processing. For me, it was as much of a learning opportunity as it was for them about how to possibly teach someone in a virtual setting from distance how to go through these concepts, because I had learned basically at the feet of Lewis Riddick in his office day in and day out in Philadelphia, picking his brain on everything. And so when I finally got the concept and the curriculum down, I started trying to pitch the concept to Jerry Angelo and Chris Palmer and Lewis Riddick and my friends in the space, and they all loved it and saw value in it. Um, They've all partnered with it, and then they started reaching into their network, pulling in more scouts and more coaches and more executives. And uh, I think right now we're at 13 or 14 um, different instructors covering all the all the position groups of NFL coaches and execs. That's that's great. Um, and when we we, we discuss this, and and I should mention Scouting Academy. It's scoutingacademy.com, Is that correct? Correct. It's not just you know you you've mentioned that it you know if if you're a fan who wants to learn more, if you're not, it's not just for people who absolutely positively want to be scouts. It's um, it's kind of an in-depth thing, and one of the fascinating things to me is that it really shows, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the sample report where you have to go back, and I'm looking at the Bryce McCain report where your student has to write what looks to be an official team-style scouting report. You know, you have to do it in the structure and in the format, and when we talked, structure and format, I think, was on both of our minds, and the need for a scouting standard, I think, is so important, and you touched on it a little bit in our intro. How varied is the scouting paradigm from team to team? Because it seems like some teams are very specific with their scouts about, we want you to do it this way, and other teams, maybe it's more about talent, and go find a guy that we like, and we'll try and fit him in. And the latter seems to be, I, I mean, you might hit on a few but the less organized you are, to me, it seems like the more time you're going to waste. Yeah, there, there is an element of efficiency, and the teams do differ. You know, there, there's absolutely teams out there that are uh, very standardized and regimented in their player profile. So everything from the height, weight, speed they would like to find 
all the way down to the trait that they feel like the player needs to have to perform well. Um, I think it all starts with an understanding of the players and the spectrum of players. So I kind of explain it this way. Let's take a wide receiver and say that there are 20 different skills between mental, physical, technique, uh, what have you, this player needs to have in order to execute their position. Well, very, very few players have good or better grades than all 20 traits. We're talking the, the Calvin Johnson end of the spectrum, those guys that are just truly unique uh, in all facets of the game. And the league does a very good job on the other side of eliminating those who don't have adequate or better traits in any of them. So the pool of available NFL players, which I tend to refer on a scale relative to starters, I think we're all looking for starters, so let's just be consistent in how we're referring to it. Where do these wide receivers fit in on those 20 traits? Are they 15 or better in a good area? Are they 10 or better, 5 or better? Which traits are they good at? Which ones are they weak at? The teams that understand that that paradigm and scout according to it find better players for their system consistently. Those who are constantly uh, moving back and forth between size and athletic and mental profiles, just hoping to catch lightning in a bottle, um, really put a strain on both their scouting staff from an efficiency standpoint and how they do their job all the way to the coaching staff and how they integrate those players. Because it seems to me that the, the whole process from your area scouts up to your scouting director, your, you know, you get up to the, all the way up to the GM, the GM interfaces with the coaches, you finally make those calls. When you have that many people, it can kind of become a game of telephone, and it would seem to me that you want, you'd want to decrease the number of angles or, or turns in the road. And, I mean, we were talking about this before, uh, you know, the whole Moneyball thing. It wasn't Billy Bean trying to sign squatty-bodied guys who got on base a lot. It was trying to define a new market efficiency. And it would seem to me that those teams who have – I'm not talking about sabermetrics or this or that. I mean, it, it can be important to some teams and others. You know, Seattle doesn't care about sabermetrics. They've been pretty successful. But they have what I would call a strong spine from – the owner to the team president to the head coach, and, and in that case, it's you know one guy to the GM. And you know, I look at the relationship between Pete Carroll and John Schneider, and how different it is uh, from the relationship between Mike Holmgren and Tim Ruskell, who you know take the Jim Mora year out, preceded Carroll and Schneider in Seattle. And Holmgren and Ruskell were so at loggerheads about things that entire chunks of the scouting process would just dissolve. And talk about a little bit about how important it is to have that strong spine where everyone, whatever that direction is, A, the direction is defined, and B, everyone's pulling in the same place. Because you can have a bunch of talented people in your front office, and if you have all these curves in the line, it really starts to not matter. You're absolutely right. I mean, I step back and try to look at it from that 30,000-foot view between your coaching staff, your players, your scouting staff, your training staff, medical, what have you, equipment. You have arguably between 120 and 150 people working almost all day, every day, seven days a week, trying to put out a product, whether it be Sunday or Monday or I guess now some Thursday night. And when you start allowing different segments of the organization to be on different paths and different wavelengths, it's just absolutely impossible to get that entire machine towards the objective that you want. You might have a positive moment here or there, but more often than not, you're going to end less than what your desired goal is, which obviously every team's out there trying to fight a champion. 
you know, a lot of people will refer to Bill Walsh, and I think he's absolutely a great mind in the space. And that was someone who dictated everything down to the secretary's job description. Right. Everybody knew exactly what their uh, function was, and then they were given the tools to achieve that. Um, it's very much a, a mission control style, if you want to talk about business structure, as opposed to command control. That's hard to micromanage everybody in that large of a space. But if you can go with what we call mission control, tell your people where you want them to go, give them the tools to get there, and then you have to allow your people to get from point A to point B, leveraging that path, uh, or at least leveraging those tools. And that's where your great organizations function. You know, Bill Belichick's do your job. Um, we're going to tell you what we want from you and how we want you to do it, and then you go execute. If you can provide surplus value, fantastic, but you at least need to do what we ask you to do. And it, just to break in and finding the winning edge, which Walsh wrote with uh, Brian Billiken, in my mind is by far the best football book ever written. He, he not only did that, but he was able to explain it bullet point by bullet point what everyone in the organization does. And it was, I think, over 100 pages just defining what everyone in the building is responsible for. And to me, you know, that those levels of success are are no coincidence. Have you have no. you been without naming names, have you been in front offices where there were kind of breaks in the chain in that regard? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they manifest themselves. It always comes to pass, whether it be one, two, three, five years. Um it always comes to pass where those things will will separate and fracture organizations. And the way I try to explain it is that they typically stem from fear. Now, fear can be a great motivator. Don't get me wrong. There's absolutely times in an organization where you're either fearful that your head might be on a chopping block or that you're going to miss on a player or what have you, that you're motivated to put in a little extra, dig a little deeper, and do your job at a better level. But fear can be disabling the different members of an organization because they're all human beings and they all function differently. And especially if you're a top decision maker, whoever that person is, whatever title or role they have, if that person is motivated by fear, it is incredibly hard to align everybody because they're fearful internally and externally and people are left to flounder and just kind of figure it out on their own and factions form and, and these things absolutely occur in NFL front offices. Yeah. And it's... Uh... How does that, I mean, you, you talked about how it manifests itself, and I think you can all imagine, but what, what kind of things have you seen, how does it show up, those fear-based decisions, when the communication stops, and all of a sudden you have a guy over here and a guy over there, and they're not really interfacing? Sure. So one of my favorite examples um, was about a running back, and it was a group I had to cross-check all of the drafts, um, all the prospects we had draftable grades on at the running back position. So the area guys did their job. The national guys, the directors did their job. They brought it down to, I think the list that was 23 names. And then you give it to a different scout, and he looks at all 23 with just the filter of running backs and starts to help um, cluster them or tier them. And I go through that process. And that's my first exposure to these players. It's March. I haven't looked at them. I don't know their backgrounds. I'm just watching the film and grading them. And I am, in my head, thinking I'm trying to grade for what our coaching staff wants out of the position. Now, I hadn't been taught that, but I assume that was the best way to go about it because I'm not the GM. I'm not the head coach. I'm not the one deciding or implementing the player. So I want to go know what, I want to know what they know. So I went to the position coach. What are you looking for? 
How do you want the guy to be built? What skills do you want him to have? What skills can you afford not to have? Um, all that kind of stuff. I went back to the tape and watched the players. And um, it was very unique that we had a few players in that draft class that I really liked. So this would be with Eddie Lacy and Levy Bell. I really liked those guys personally. And they would have been functional in our system, but there were other players further down uh, the rankings that, like an Andre Ellington, that would have been very good for our system. And so I put a higher grade on him than most. I think they brought Monty Ball down in our system more than other people would have liked. And so I go back and present to the scouting room, and there was just disconnect. They didn't understand my process yeah. or my objective, that my grades weren't matching up with their stuff. And a lot of my work gets tossed aside. I think my process was quality. If I look at my results now, I certainly want to justify um, how they turned out. But, yeah, it was one of those things where without being taught exactly what to do or how to do it, you go out there and try to create a process, and then you get back to integrate it, and it doesn't match up because it wasn't what they were looking for. Yeah, Phil Savage, who, I mean, I, obviously you know who Phil is. <laughs> Great guy, sure. longtime NFL executive, now runs a senior bowl, wrote a fascinating column this week about – how he would like evaluators, whether professional or media or quote-unquote amateur, to talk about uh, draft prospects. And he would always say, "Don't." T- he, what he said in the column was, don't tell me where you think a guy will be picked. That means nothing to us in this building. Tell me what you think he can and can't do. Tell me what you think his skill set is. And then tell me how he fits here. And I, I think... A lot of us, and I've certainly been guilty of it, get caught up. And he's he's got a first, you know, he's a first round guy. He's a top five guy. Well, he may not be. I mean, and, and it could have a you know a hundred different ramifications. But I, you know, I think your point to the the level and the style of communication in those front offices is it's just of paramount importance. When you, I mean, you 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 have people signing up for scoutingacademy.com. They're writing reports. You've obviously worked with a lot of other scouts. Let's say somebody puts you in charge of an NFL team scouting department. What are the most important things? I mean, everything is important, but what are the most important traits and characteristics you need to see in a scout you've hired or are about to hire or would like to mentor? What makes a scout really, quote-unquote, worth it? What, what does he need, he or she need to master? Well, I think there are kind of broad categories like problem-solving, uh, analytical skills, um, your ability to, you know, dig deep. Because as a scout, you're, you're part psychologist, you're part private detective, you're part um, analyst. You know, you have all these disparate roles because we are human beings evaluating human beings. And I'd argue there's 75 different traits you could look at when trying to understand how a, a person might play the game for your team. So uh, you need a lot of those high-caliber minds from that standpoint. And they don't have to be rocket scientists in terms of um, how they can create you know, economic models and, and predict the future, but I'm talking about people that can work through a process and find areas for improvement and, and dig deeper into details. You need that. Second thing you need is a level of football acumen. And one of the things I, I tell my guys is that if you can't tell me how the flood concept matches up against cover two or how you could potentially leverage cover two against the flood concept, we're going to have a disconnect because yeah. you can tell me all about his ankle flexion and his burst off the hash and what you perceive of his ball skills. 
But if you just measure a guy's athletic ability, even as it manifests itself on the field, you're missing so much of the mental picture of the game. Uh-huh. And I argue that athletic ability creates the floor for a player. The mental ability creates the ceiling. This is why you know Mike Vrabel has a much longer career than Aaron Maven. Uh-huh. Um, so you got to have a little bit of X's and O's. I don't expect you to be an NFL coordinator, but you at least need to have some fundamental concepts down as teams attack the run game, the pass game, defense, etc., so that you can watch and try to understand these players. If you have those those two buckets, I think the ability to learn how to watch tape, how to take notes, how to communicate your process absolutely can all be taught. I think there's a large pool of people who can be quality evaluators. Um, I was just, When you were saying that, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I was thinking about the primary thing I've learned from my mistakes in evaluation. And I think the, the thing I've learned predominantly over everything else, when I go back and look at, boy, I just I completely missed a boat on that guy, it's the ability to watch a player in a college scheme, whatever it may be, and not get bowled over by the scheme, not get married to where he is, but focus more on, okay, he's in this. And I was watching Tevin Coleman um, this morning and, you know, can do a lot of things very well. Was in an offense that really didn't um, maximize his skill because he's more of an outside guy than an inside guy. Not a lot of gaps inside. But in a general sense, how important is it then, once you have that football acumen, you have the problem-solving skills, you can you know interface with other people, how important is it to be able to say, okay, this guy's running this offense, or he's in this offense or defense in college. We don't run anything like that, but I can isolate the player. And Greg Cosell told me this years ago, and it's, it's something that I really, really try and follow as hard as I can when I'm doing draft stuff. Isolate the player outside of the scheme. Tell me his traits, his attributes, not how he fits in that system. So, I mean, based on what you're saying about, you know, flood versus cover two and how he fits here, I think you almost have to first take him out of how he fits in college, then put him on a, you know, an isolated hypothetical Petri dish, and then put him into your scheme. It, it seems to me like it's almost a three-step process. I wouldn't disagree with that. You know, the first thing that we teach our 10 core traits per position. Now, like I already argued, there's plenty more that you can evaluate, but at least understand a certain uh, 10 traits that we argue if a player has good or better skills in all of those traits, their chances of being successful are high. So for a running back, we're talking about critical factors like their athletic ability, their play strength, their play speed, mental processing, their competitive toughness. Um, we're talking about their vision, their yards after contact uh, in the passing game. If you, once you can isolate those particular traits, I agree, you need to be able to quantify and grade them individually. I think that's one of the big, big missteps is that the vast majority of evaluators will look at all of those things when trying to paint their full picture. But then the evaluator tries to combine everything they think they know about the guy and meld it into one final grade to your Phil Savage point. Yeah. I've been on this soapbox for almost too long. I've had to apologize to my Twitter followers for <laughs> railing on it so often. Well, I know because you retweeted the Phil Savage piece. That's where I saw Absolutely. it. <laughs> uh, I, was tell- I was telling people, please read, save, and utilize this. This is important stuff. And it's not just me. I like it on my soapbox. These are people with a lot more years of experience than I have. 
telling you that if you can tell me that, if you can tell me what you can do in each of these individual areas, then we can talk about how those areas impact our that final step about translating the traits from college into what we're going to do in the pros. And does this player have that wide receiver example with a 20 trait? It's the same, same methodology. Where does this guy stack up? I will argue that inside of those individual trait grades, things like mental processing really come down to your understanding of some basic X's and O's. Yeah. Because if you don't understand that and you're watching Tevin Coleman and you're watching the front side of an outside zone play and you're looking at a, you know, against the even front and it's a combo block and the tackle screws up and doesn't pass him off to the guard and there's penetration, he should know how to get to his backside read, yada, yada, yada. If you don't know those things, you can't grade his mental process or his vision. You're just abstracting what you think his instincts are. And I just argue that instincts is a way, way too understood term that's overused. Yeah. Um, but you can evaluate a lot of traits on film and, like you said, move to that kind of Petri dish situation. And that's kind of my soapbox, and I, I, I'm not putting myself above everyone because I've been guilty of it. I, I'm doing you know, a bunch of scouting reports for SI right now, and I'm, I'm a throw, I've thrown generalities in there even though I hate it. But yeah. I think the importance of being more specific in our scouting language is so key and so crucial because when you get down to those specific words and you start to employ those specific words, it actually forces you to understand the game better because you can't just say, oh, he doesn't, you know, he, he, you know, he's not an inside runner. Well, no, that, I mean, okay, he, but why? And in Tevin Coleman's case, there you case, go. And That's I'm, the word right yeah, there. Why? Why? And I'm looking at Tevin Coleman and I'm thinking, well, he doesn't always wait for his blocks to open. He doesn't always wait for his gaps to open. He's, spr- he, he's doing what Adrian Peterson did early in his career. He's hitting the hole too early, and the hole isn't there yet. And it's, he's just getting enveloped because he's not Marshawn Lynch, and he can't break contact like that. So I think the more specific you get in your terminology, the more it forces you to go back to the tape, and the bookshelf, and you know whatever, or you have a Lewis Riddick, and you sit at his feet, and you have him explain things, and you do what I've done for years, which is ask stupid questions, and hopefully the next time the question will be a little <laughs> less stupid. But I think the more specific we get in our scouting language, uh, professionally, certainly in the media, people who just like to watch tape for fun, whatever it is, the more specific you get with your language, the more you are forced, absolutely forced, to understand the game at a more, at a deeper level. So the, you're 100% right. The, the big thing, there's two big points that I would go to after that. The first one is use of adjectives. Yeah. It is unbelievable to me how widespread and unorganized adjective use is, even within a team. I never had a team sit down and explain, here's our verbiage, when we say good, we mean this. Oh. Nobody ever taught me that. <laughs> and so I look on in the outside or inside or wherever. It's pervasive. In the middle of a grading scale, let's say we have players on a bell curve, in the middle of the scale, uh, we like on our grading scale, we have the term solid. We have a very specific definition for what solid means as it pertains to that trait. Now, if you were to go across the spectrum, you would hear people talk about he's all right, he's solid, he's good, He's adequate. He's okay. Um, any of a large variety of terms that would be applied at that one instance and then maybe applied differently down the road. 
if an individual evaluator would simply standardize their adjective use, create your own grading scale, stick to an adjective and know what that means and use it every time, your ability to look back and leverage those reports and speak to them would be so much cleaner. Because you talk about these guys, even the ones doing draft evals for this class. Maybe they've done 300 evals. They started in August. Great. Do you remember everything you saw on film and that player in September? Well, no, you had to take some notes because you don't have infinite memory and you don't have infinite recall. Well, if you use the term all right or okay or solid or good or whatever it is, but you use it differently across a position group or across a trait, when you go back, you have no idea what that meant. Yeah. And so if you just standardize your adjective, you should take a step ahead. And the second one I always push into is when you like an attribute of a player, when you're saying he can do something or this is where he wins, speech generalities get a lot easier and, and cleaner. And you can be very simple in your scouting report. Where things get to be a bit tougher is when you're arguing that a player struggles in an area or is inconsistent. Yeah. And what most people do is they leverage placeholders. So at times he does this, sometimes he does that, occasionally he does this or doesn't do that. If you would take out those placeholders and in your mental checklist when you're watching film, just ask yourself why and when. Why is this player successful or not successful? When is this player successful or not successful? Get a little more content. Yep. Is he catching the ball uh, or is he not catching the ball when he's on the move on a dig right over the middle? Is it when he's got a guy in his hip pocket? Is he unable to track the ball over his shoulder? When is it that he's struggling to make a catch? Don't just tell me that he's inconsistent in his hands. That doesn't help me as a decision maker value the player. But if you can tell me when and why his hands fail him in different moments, now we really have something to work with. Okay, I'm fascinated by this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an exercise here. I'm going to open myself up to getting slammed, and I'm going to give you – I just finished the Tevin Coleman report about half an hour before we started this podcast. Now I'm going to spend a minute, and I'm going to give you sentence by sentence what I consider to be his quote-unquote weaknesses. You tell me if this is adequate for what an NFL team would need. Okay? Okay, sure. Uh, started out with thin body with some room for more muscle but not an inside power guy. Does that tell you enough? Uh, so you're telling me about his thin frame. Um, there's some things that you can do from a sports science perspective to measure some of his bone. Uh, you measure his ankles, his wrists. There's some things you can do to start understanding his maximum frame. So it's good to know that he's thin now. I can have my strength team tell me if he can improve. And then his frame doesn't necessarily have anything to do with his inside run skills, which you're speaking to is maybe power on contact or finish um, or how he engages strength-wise against a defender. Uh-huh. So I would separate those things and move his inside run skills to a different thing because you could have a thin body guy that can run inside because that's more of a vision and determination thing versus his frame being able to carry and and attack a defender and gain yards after contact. Okay. Uh, I actually, I'll I'll go down to where I wrote partially a technique. uh, Let's see. Doesn't break through first contact consistently, susceptible to arm and ankle tackles. Partially a technique issue. He runs too high and doesn't maximize his physical strength. No, because then you're speaking to why he's unable to go through that. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the finish, the yards after contact, the balance, uh, the functional strength in those situations uh, sound like they're all manifesting themselves. And you pointed to a lot of them, so that, that's a solid statement. Okay, can explode through gaps when they're there, but isn't a creator when things are limited between the tackles. So this guy's 
going to be reliant on his offensive line to create um, as opposed to being, uh, like I said, more creative when things break down um, or, you know, able to make his appropriate reads. So you're going to have to create pretty clear gaps for this guy to be successful, at least on the inside, what it sounds like. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Must learn to better read openings and avoid hurrying to gaps before they exist. Yeah, the the mental processing for running backs is tough because so often at lower levels, and this isn't a bash coach at those levels, but when you have a guy who's physically superior to the competition, sometimes it's best to just allow them to do things as they have. You know, that term instinctual comes up. Like I said, there's a disconnect in how people leverage that. But um, one of the toughest things to do for a running back eval is to look at how they've been asked to make reads and how they've made reads and then project that moving forward. It's one of those elements you almost always have to go to the position coach or the coordinator and kind of understand as you let this guy go, what you ask him to do things, how is he able to do it um, to make that final determination. But in terms of your point, you know, his, what he's showing on film, I think you got that across. Um, and finally needs to work his open field elusiveness into his game at and near the line of scrimmage. So you're saying he has open field elusiveness downfield, but he struggles to do that at the line of scrimmage? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what I ask guys to do is I separate reports into a can section and a cannot. So you, at the first part, you want to tell guys what this player can do because mentally, human beings, if you start off with negatives, disconnect from the report and they start to shut down. So you can tell me all the things he can do at the top. So one of the things is open field elusiveness. Then at the bottom of the report, you can say does not display the same open field elusiveness at the line of scrimmage, hesitates, what have you, you know, runs into tackles, et cetera. Okay, to that end, I'll give you a strength since you mentioned that. Um, and this, I, I hope this isn't boring you. It's fascinating to me because I want <laughs> – this is giving me an idea. It's what I do every day, so it's all good. It's how, to, it's how to do this better. Okay, strengths. This is, again, Tevin Coleman for those listening, running back in Indiana. Uh, has the smooth speed and agility to bounce outside the tackles into the boundary quickly, keeping his eyes and shoulders front. Speaking to you know lateral agility, uh, explosiveness, change of direction, you know his movement skills. I'm hearing a lot about his athletic ability. Yeah, uh, great jump cut runner who can fake de- defenders out in space. That that to me reads as a little more general. Maybe you'd need to know more. I don't know. Yeah. So. You know, the, his ability to do things in space um, it can certainly be valid. There's so much that needs to happen before he ever gets into space at the NFL level. I need to know more about this jump cut because down uh, before when you were talking about his negatives, you were talking about his ability to, to um, make defenders miss at or near the line of scrimmage. And so I'm trying to, in my head, uh, bring together this jump cut ability with uh, what seems to be a deficiency in his ability to do things at the line of scrimmage. So is it that he has the athletic ability to make those movements at the line of scrimmage, but is struggling mentally to translate that and to actually execute on it? Or is he just unable in small spaces to make those uh, lateral cuts? So it's my responsibility as your Tevin Coleman scout to tie those things together. Whether, yeah, I would, want, I would it, want to know that. Whether, whether I'm doing it in can or cannot or both, I need to tie those things together somehow so that you, pro personnel director, can understand it. Correct. Okay. Uh, has the extra gear knows how to use it. Average distance per touchdown in 2014 was 40.3 yards and led the NCAA with eight 60-plus yard runs. And why I wanted to bring that up is how important – or is it important to include any sort of stats in an NFL scouting report, or do you care? You can care. It, it, 
we always talk about context. If it's providing some context, it can be really good. Um, so in that case, obviously, it, you're, you're saying that he was one of the elite ones in terms of breaking off the long runs in the NCA. From a formatting standpoint, sometimes all, you know, in our internal format, we'll have guys, there's a section up top where you're putting in his height, weight, speed, to put in key stats. The guy might embed that there, so their actual written report doesn't have to be as, as word-heavy. Um, unfortunately, even internally, sometimes decision-makers just don't want to read a ton. So we're always looking for efficiency in our report. So I might have the guy put a stat section up top. So there's key stats right at the beginning. And then, you know, that's, you know, essentially correlated between the verbiage below and the stat above. Uh, but yeah, they, they can absolutely be important. I don't want to know every single one of the stats. Um, but if there's something that, that stands out, you certainly want to point to it. And then outstanding instincts and agility in space, legitimate threat to score whenever he gets to the open field, which may or may not tie into what we were talking about before. No, it, it does. You're talking about how his athletic ability translates in space, uh, particularly how he can set up and, and get by defenders. One of the things I would want to know contextually are these defenders uh, DBs or linebackers, uh, because there can be a difference there. If he's, if he's actually able to make uh, DBs miss, who typically have better lateral agility and change of direction, um, that obviously speaks to a higher level of athletic ability than if he's just doing it to linebackers. So that could help. The thing from the overall projection of the player, you can get really excited about the athletic traits and the home run hitting ability, but if he can't grind out the three- and four-yard runs when you're going with you know, power against an even front or an inside zone play or what have you and he's not making the correct read, he's never going to get to that second level and all those traits become useless. We've seen those guys fail in the league where they had all the home run hitting ability, but there was, they never got to the place to, to use it. Okay, uh, I'll go past the, you know, he's a surprisingly willing and effective blocker for, blocker for his frame, dynamic ability in the return game. Um, the way I end his strengths is will likely be more effective in an offense that features more variety and position versatility. What does that tell you? More variety and position versatility. So are you saying that he's got functional skills on all three downs, if used correctly? Yes. Okay. Um yeah, that, that, that verbiage can, can hit home for me in that way. Um, and then the, when I talk about a projection, the first thing I want to be able to do is tell me where he fits into a roster. And, and this really pertains to year one. So is this guy a starter, a backup, a role player in an NFL offense tomorrow? Um, we can talk about where he's going to move from there, but let's talk about what he can be for us day one, and then we'll grow. Because we don't have a lot of window for development anymore in the league. Tell me where he fits in an office. Tell me what schemes or um, techniques or assignments he can execute well that will ex- uh, really show off and showcase his skills. The last thing I want to know are where are the areas that a coaching staff is going to need to have a plan for this guy because he's going to struggle. And so if you can give me those three points in a projection, that really wraps up all of your summary pretty efficiently. So I've created a mental picture for you of Tevin Coleman to a greater or lesser degree. What did I not tell you that you need to know for a running back? Um, I'm not sold on – I would want to know more about his mental processing. I would want to know more about his competitive toughness. Um, I'm not sure I fully understand his play strength at this point. Um, and I would want to know a little more about route running or hand in the passing game, you know, oh. where, where he actually factors in on those areas of their strengths or their weaknesses. You can get by with either answer. Um, you know, obviously want to know a little bit about pass pro. I think you said you were glossing over that statement, so it might be there. No, I said surprisingly effective block, willing and effective blocker for his frame. Okay. That, that actually um, stood out to me. 
the, the one piece of Aspro that really kicks in um, are is this is this player taking on very clear, you know, let's say it's an outside rusher or corners coming in, he can see it clearly, take it, own it, block it, great. Or is this player at the next level of pass pro where he can actually scan the formation, pick up late blitzers, crossers, stunts, what have you, and still execute both mentally and physically. That's that kind of next tier of pass pro. So I might want to have a little more information as to that. Wow, I've just been I've been officially graded. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, because, I, I, you know, I, I think we in the media, we need to be cross-checked too because we throw this stuff out there and, and hopefully we're being honest about it. But in this, I think it happens at whatever level you're on. If you're an amateur evaluator, if you're, you know, doing it for an NFL team, whatever it is, you've got to be cross-checked. And, and you, you know, we've, we've talked throughout this podcast about the need for a standard language and a standard paradigm. And, you know, that applies to dorks in the media like me too. Um, I wanted to end this podcast with uh, a really fascinating topic you brought up when we were talking on the phone last weekend. And I I may be mangling the concept, but the need to quote unquote decrease the value or specific need at the five most important positions. Because we were talking about Moneyball and how you maintain roster strength throughout, you know, despite the need for to spend more money on this or that per year against the cap and things like that. But I was really um, I was really intrigued by the way you put it. Um, we can absolutely dive into that. So this all stems from my master's thesis in grad school. So I wrote an article uh, that's in the Villanova Law Journal that broke down the salary cap, the 2011 CBA, salary cap mechanisms, and the, the job duties of a general manager and how people have gotten to that job. It's a massive you know, uh, breakdown, and it, it's, it's hard to digest, I'll admit to that. So what came to me was the league does an unbelievably good job of creating competitive balance. And in economic terms, there's a principle of uncertainty that helps the league grow financially. So when you don't know what's going to happen on Sunday, you're more interested in watching than if you know what's going to happen on Sunday. And as such, the league's going to have uh, better ratings, and obviously the money has, has followed that. So the question is, from a team perspective, because the league and the CBA does such a good job of, of creating parity and competitive balance, how can you find opportunities for a competitive advantage? It can be schematic. Um, it could be player. It could be sports science, nutrition, rehab, medical, what have you. There's a variety. One of the ones I'm interested in is coaching staff that can decrease the value of one of the premium positions. So um, I got these five from, from Riddick uh, once again. So he argues that quarterback, uh, wide receiver, pass rusher, pass protector, and your a corner in some order are your top five premium positions, both in, in need for a team and in, in cap dollars. I would probably so, put safety at number six at this point in the NFL, but we're quibbling. Different teams might go with either you know a middle linebacker, a D tackle, or a safety, depending on your scheme. Uh, but yeah, somebody down the middle of the defense, you can you can leverage one of those if they're elite to, to separate things. And I mean a true center field guy because without that, if you're playing the Packers, you're in deep doo doo. 
Well, I look at how, you know, Tony Dungy ran the, the, the Tampa system for years, and it was a Warren Sapp um, that really made things unique. Now, they trust me, they had second and third level players that were fantastic, but having that internal pass rusher changed how quarterbacks could leverage the pocket. Yeah. So, you know, you could get, you could do that. Um, having a Brian Urlacher in the middle of a defense that can take away post route by number one and leave your safeties to play more outside could leverage, you, know, you didn't need to have great safety. You know, there's there's ways to get about it. But, yeah, somebody down the middle of the defense typically falls in that 6-7 hole. Um, but my point was, so if you're a GM and you're looking at the cap dollars and you're talking to your coach and you're trying to determine how we can gain a competitive advantage, I, I would argue this. If the coaching staff could scheme a way to decrease the importance of one of those five premium positions, you would have – additional cap dollars to invest in other areas, and I think they'd really benefit the team. So what do I mean by that? So I point to, like, the New Orleans Saints. So for years, they had Jari Evans and Carl Nix at guard, and those two guys just basically didn't move an inch. They would pop up and pass pro and short set on the line of scrimmage and just absolutely hold their ground. And at tackle, they did not have the, you know, uh, Walter Jones or Jason Peters or Joe Thomas-type players. So they had functional guys, but they weren't being paid premium dollars. Now, what that meant was the quarterback was, now a guy like Drew Brees has a vertical space in the pocket to step up and throw that he knew how to leverage well. So the coaching staff looked at their quarterback, looked at their offensive line, and said, okay, because of the way these guys play ball, we don't need to um, spend as much in terms of resources on the tackle position. And as such, they didn't, and they had more money to invest in other areas, defensively or, or uh, weapons on the outside or what have you. So that was a way they went around it. Another team that I point to is Seattle in the corner position. So the last few years, they've had fifth, sixth, seventh round picks starting um, across much of their secondary. Four, you know, I think what Kim Chancellor, fourth or fifth round pick. Um, so what they did is they said, hey, we got a guy in Earl Thomas who is an absolute freak in the back end. And what he can do in our coverage schemes to protect our corners really gives us an advantage. If we pair that with long, proactive, smart defenders on the perimeter, we can take away a lot of routes without having to invest in some of the elite change of direction, Darrell Rivas type corners. We can save ourselves some cap dollars. Now, they also were able to get a, a lot of extra performance and surplus value out of the quarterback position, so they had a lot of things moving in their direction. Yeah. Uh, but that's one of those things that they did to help decrease the premium position for a few years and gave them a competitive advantage that they leveraged to go get a bunch of pass rushers on the market for a pretty good dollar. And they had a great front with a great secondary, and guess what? The defense was, was pretty damn good. Yeah. And, that, I mean, they've given – you know, they gave Sherman the money. They gave Thomas the money. Uh, they passed on Maxwell. Uh, yep. and Eagles paid him like a number one corner. And Browner the year before. Yeah. Um, and they bring in Kerry Williams. And to me, that's a perfect example of I'm, I'm watching Kerry Williams tape after that move was made. And I'm thinking to myself, he, I can see exactly what the Seahawks are thinking. They're like, he's not technique perfect. He's all over the place. But if he's willing to be taught... He has the physical characteristics we want. He can come in here. We can show him our way of covering receivers. He has enough of the, you know, we can see enough on tape to sort of lead ourselves in that direction. And I think, I mean, to me, that's an educated guess. And I think when we're talking about the ideal scouting paradigm, it's an educated guess. And that's the best you can do. But if you're not educated and you're not communicating and it's not in line, that's where things tend to fall apart. 
Well, it certainly helps their scouts to have specific position profiles. So when they're going out and looking at DBs, you know, okay, well, I've got a 5'9 quarter who's got outstanding change of direction and vertical leap and, and took a bunch of routes away at, you know, some American conference school. Well, that's not on their position profile. Yeah. So rather than spending extra time and resources investigating that guy, we'll let somebody else leverage him, maybe even leverage him well. But we know what we need to run our system. Yeah, Here's what he, we need. Pete Carroll would say it. at that point, I hope he enjoys Tampa. I hope he finds it nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that that makes their whole process efficient. Yes, are there going to be players that are going to go other places and be successful? Yeah, but there's no, there's no logic behind the argument that they would have been successful in Seattle. So there's an assumption that can be made, but not a logical argument. So I'd argue that, yeah, they're, they're doing things better than others because they're telling their guys, this is what we need, go get it. Well, I would argue even more than they're doing things better than other teams, they're just they're doing things you know, at the base standard plus, but they start by simply doing things the way they need to be done. And that, that's what I like about the Scouting Academy and, and, and the idea of, of making more of a standard language because that's where it starts. When you get more teams up to the middle, you get back to that competitive balance. We all have a better game and a better process and a better result. Well, uh, Dan Hatman, chairman of the scout of scouting development at the Scouting Academy, uh, former scout with the Eagles, Jets, and Giants. Yes, I'm just cheating and reading that off your Twitter profile. <laughs> uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed being uh, graded on my. Uh, oof, that was that was painful. <laughs> um, no problem. No, that's like I said, that's that's what we all need. We all need to be cross-checked. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time and hope to talk to you soon. Perfect. Looking forward to it.